Hello, David Oakes here, speaking from the Great British Lockdown with a topical addition to Trees A Crowd. We're releasing this episode in all the usual places, as well as in partnership with the London Climate Change Festival. I was supposed to be speaking at the festival today with Ed Davey of the World Resources Institute, but in light of all public events being postponed, Ed and I caught up this morning via Skype to have a quick chat about what COVID-19 could potentially mean in regards to feeding our growing global population and how we can be best placed to support our fellow man once this pandemic has elapsed. So I wish I could be introducing him under better circumstances, but this is Ed Davey, of the World Resources Institute and the Food and Land Use Coalition, and this is Trees A Crowd. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, Ed. Welcome to Trees of Crowd. David, thank you. Um, I'm sorry we're not in person, firstly. Um, obviously, today we were supposed to speak at the London Climate Change Festival, but circumstances have rather changed since then. So rather than doing a full proper Trees of Crowd, I thought we might just have a chat about the current circumstances of, of the environment of the countries and the world's food chains and how things may be affected positively and negatively by the COVID-19 outbreak. David, thank you. It is it is a unique time. It's obviously a very tragic time and thoughts are with everyone affected. Uh, we're all, of course, deeply worried. The, the COVID crisis has a huge impact on farmers and the food system. And the Food and Land Use Coalition that I work for is today putting out a statement about ways in which the world can support farmers mm-hmm. and people who need access to food through this very challenging and tragic set of circumstances. That sort of reminds me of one of the things I was reading this morning about the, the danger, perhaps in the light of a, of a pandemic, is nation states stockpiling their resources and not, and basically sort of shutting off the, the cycle of food around the world, getting it to where it's needed. That, that is a real risk. We do rely on a global food system that, in, that relies on countries trading with one another. And if those borders close and if the trade system falls down, that will have a very, very negative impact on farmers' lives and also on, on the urban poor, the lives of the urban poor. I guess, so and the one, one article I was reading this morning was about how, in terms of how it's going to affect Britain primarily in the first places, we've got a, a deficit of about 60,000 seasonal workers that normally come over and work our, our land force. You've also got... Uh, I think it was Kazakhstan uh, banning the export of wheat flour. You've got Vietnam uh, stopping exporting rice. Um, and I think they're the world's third biggest rice exporter or something. Um, yes. And Russia is the biggest wheat. They're considering embargoes. And who knows what the US is going to do with Trump because we only ever find out when he opens his mouth quickly. Um, so who is talking to the people at the top to try and mitigate any kind of food shortages? I think we all have some hope that the UN Secretary General's call to the G20 yesterday for unprecedented coordinated action will resonate effectively. This is not a good time for multilateral governance. But if the nations of the world do act together in a concerted, purposeful way, those actions could include a whole set of measures to try to bolster the global food system at this time. Part of that's about trade that we've discussed, but part of it's also about a set of measures to support farmers in particular countries. I mean, consider India. 
today or yesterday, the announcement was made that they will pursue a national policy of self-isolation. That will have a huge impact on many millions of Indians' lives. And it will have also a huge impact on, on, the, on the rural, the marginalised poor in India. So a, a big package of support for farmers in India to relieve agrarian distress will be very important. Is that support just financial or are we trying to give them people in order to work the land, etc.? Like how, how do we provide aid? It's predominantly uh, finance to farmers, to cooperatives, support for rural infrastructure. It's also about providing safety nets, ensuring that there's enough food in local supply chains to keep people fed with a nutritious diet. So it's effectively a whole set of measures. It doesn't necessarily equate in India to more people moving to the land, Mm -hmm. which is obviously a deficit that we face here in the UK. There's a big call at the moment for a land army, an almost sort of World War II-like dig for victory effort where you send people from the cities out into the countryside to try and uh, to get things out of the ground or off the bushes or off the trees in time. Is that a successful way to, to mitigate things or is that just going to spread the virus more, do you think? Well, of course, there, there is that huge risk at the moment. Um, but I think what, what, what's happening prompts this thought. When we're through the crisis um, in the months or years ahead, what kind of food system do we establish? Mm-hmm. Do we return to the existing one, which has many pathologies as well as many positive aspects? Or do we collectively as a world try to bring about a more sustainable and resilient food system? And And in my mind, we do pivot from this terrible tragedy to a better, more resilient system. And that will, I think, lead to much more local production in countries. Now, the risk there is if you do that badly, it also exacerbates environmental damage. But actually, if we do it well, then there is a better, more agroecological future in many countries around the world. There are a lot of people at the moment from uh, from the green side of things who are shouting for all of these temporary legislations or shifts in way of thinking to a slightly more socialist, uh, supportive, communal way of looking at things to make sure that these rules don't remain temporary, that we can hold on to certain things. A lot of people calling for um, the deals to to bolster the airlines at the moment, for example, to do it on the condition that maybe once we're at the other side, that they are then forced to limit their carbon output as a result of it, that this is a way to initiate good green or good uh, agricultural policy. Do you think that's something that's realistically going to be achievable, or do you think we're just going to jump straight back into trying to bolster the capitalist economy on the outside? It's a very, very interesting question. WRI has uh, put forward quite an articulate case for ensuring that fiscal stimulus packages around the world are aligned with and further the green economy. And I deeply believe that that's a good call to make. And I think there are a whole set of measures that could be pursued in these fiscal stimuli for better rural development. I'm I'm concerned that um, those who are critical of the environmental community uh, will relish the fact if we are too forthcoming at the moment with the vision of a better world that somehow could follow from this terrible tragedy. I think we have to be very sensitive and careful about that. But decisions are being made in real time that will bake in patterns of development over this critical next decade. And I think it's therefore only right and legitimate that all of us who are dreaming of a better world, including on the environment, come forward now with sensitive, thoughtful views about how things could be better in the long term. Sure. There was an amazing... um infographic this morning that I was looking at at the nitrogen dioxide emissions coming out of Wuhan um, in December 
of uh, last year and in March of now, and it's diminished hugely. Obviously, people see that as an, uh, an environmental shift to the better, but the economic footprint of shutting down that many factories instantaneously can only have negative effects. I mean, it's as you say, it's finding that balance between the environment and human society. I deeply believe that we will only win on the environment over the coming century if people are at the heart of that transition. And it's got to be a fair transition for coal workers, for farmers, for everybody affected by the current crisis. And temporary gains on the environment and air pollution and so on will be illusory if they don't ultimately come hand in hand with a better, more dignified life lives for the the billions of people on the world today and the nine billion by 2050 so i think this this does this crisis does it will give us an opportunity in the future to think about a better society a fairer society a more resilient society and i do think we can start to sow the seeds of that thinking now but the immediate priority of course is this unprecedented global response Mm -hmm. to this health emergency taking place before our eyes. If you could sneak, making it about you, if you could sneak one policy into our future agenda, when we're outside the other side of COVID-19, which will hopefully be sooner rather than later, if you could guarantee one policy to get into a global perspective, what would it be? I think it would be to do with repurposing agricultural subsidies. At present in the world, we spend at least in the order of $700 billion every year in agricultural subsidies. And um, I think we should be spending as much as that, if not more. But my hope would be that we would more explicitly tie those sorts of subsidies to better social and environmental outcomes in the rural sphere. How so? Well, in the UK, just as one example, uh, we are currently, as a country, reforming our agricultural subsidy regime to pay farmers with public money to deliver public goods, which in equates to better environmental management. And effectively, if we were to pursue those sorts of approaches around the world, that could be a very positive outcome. It's not that we don't want to fund the countryside. We actually want to fund it more. We want there to be a vibrant, resilient, healthy, revitalized rural sphere in the world. But we can use public money better to achieve that. Okay, if that's the if that's the positive question that I've got, um, what do you think is the worst possible outcome either in a small level in terms of a species going extinct or crops failing? What is the worst thing that could potentially happen as a result of COVID-19? I think the, the really big risk at the moment is that the, the fiscal stimulus that's pursued effectively goes into all of the same heavy GHG emitting companies and sectors uh, that have res- been responsible for the climate breakdown. And actually, that would be a terrible tragedy if we just resumed a few months down the line as we were going before. There will be billions, if not trillions of dollars of public money going into economic revitalization. That is a golden opportunity to spend that money well to achieve a green economy. And that economy, by the way, is good for people's health. It's good for economic growth. It's good for people's lungs, their enjoyment of fresh air. Mm -hmm. There are many benefits. And that's the story we've always told as, as a community. But this is now the moment to really pursue that in a way that's fair and just and that brings people along with us. 
on an individual basis, it does seem at the moment that certainly the population of London where, where I am and you are, are getting out for their one form of exercise every day and appreciating the natural world in a way that perhaps they didn't do before, whether it's on the back of a bicycle or just walking through uh, a spring orchard or whatever, if they're lucky enough to have one near them. Um, I'm, ho- I'm personally hoping that people don't forget the the, that proximity that they've sort of managed to get back in their lives as a result of this tragedy. I agree. I, I, I've been walking my young son, Ollie, through the back streets in my area, very quiet streets, barely a car in sight, uh, beautiful spring days. And it's true, we are slowing down. We're connecting more as communities, as families, and we're, we're flying less, and we are, in a sense, much more attuned to the natural world. And I think that, of course, is a very, very positive thing in its own right, even if it's been born out of this desperate situation. Mm-hmm. And if we do live more sustainably, the other side of this, that, of course, will be a very good development. Having a couple of years ago written a book called 10 Ways to Save the World, do you think that you might have discovered an 11th through having this wholly new and uncomfortable perspective? I, in the book, articulated the view that we did need some kind of martial plan for the environment. And I did invoke, as many environmentalists do, the spirit that pervaded the effort at the end at the Second World War, during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Of course, I had no sense that we were approaching this health epidemic. I mean, we were, many of us have been worried about these things for a number of years, but you know, the, the coronavirus did not even exist in our imagination at that time. I think in crisis opportunity, I do take that from what we're living through. There are all sorts of other parallels about how humanity responds to a crisis or not, and, and lots of those threads of what we share between these two crises, COVID-19 and climate crisis, are being explored. But I do think think there is this opportunity in tragedy to think about the better world, the restored earth that I dreamt about in my book. Uh, but we, in order to, to get there as a community who articulate a view about this, we need first to be very sensitive to the desperate situation that's affecting all of us. And then when we're starting to come out of that, come forward with a view about how we could do things better. We can't be too late. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we'll have set the path but we can't be too early either it sounds like you've got a very sort of patient and calm and measured approach to things which hopefully people will hold on to when we come out the other side there's going to be a lot of knee-jerk reactions i fear yes that's right and it's certainly not a given that things will move in a better direction but there is a chance and i think over these coming months of of quiet reflection and care for one another and for our communities we can also all of us start thinking about what kind of world might we live in over the coming decades and in my own personal life uh, my wife and i are expecting our second child tomorrow as you know yes indeed and i think over the coming I will have a very personal feeling about, you know, what kind of world is this little child going to live live in and grow up in? And that will also expand my concern for those who are so much more vulnerable to this desperate situation than we are. And I'm thinking in particular of people in refugee camps, people in parts of sub-Saharan Africa with much more vulnerable health systems and so on. So it's also a time for being incredibly grateful for what we have and very thoughtful about those who are less fortunate. I think it's making us all look at the more fragile of, of our societies, whether it be the soon-to-be or newly born or the older or um, just simply those with not having the right kind of access to life-saving medicine. Um, and I think everyone's had to readdress what it is that society actually can give us in these kind of circumstances, um, which is 
terrifying, humbling, and hopefully um, a good lesson to be learned by everybody. Um, thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for coming along to talk. Um, as in coming along, as in for sitting in your bedroom, and I'm I'm not I'm still in my pajamas. <laughs> I'm still wearing my dressing gown. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll hopefully get together on the other side of this and sit down in person and record a proper treaser crowd, and we can perhaps talk about some slightly lighter issues. Um, right. But it'll be very interesting to compare where we sit now um, and where we sit in hopefully a few weeks, if not a few months' time. Anyway, Ed, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you, David. I look forward to it. All the best. Thank you for the opportunity. A huge thank you to Ed for talking to me this morning. Hopefully, he and I will get to sit down to have a more in-depth discussion in a matter of months under better conditions. But until then, give him a follow on Twitter at EdwardLeoDavy, and I'm sure he'll keep you updated as to how our future is looking. We're releasing a standard episode on Monday morning with Dr. Helen Phoebe of the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. And as mentioned at the top of the show, please head over to the London Climate Change Festival's YouTube channel to hear from all their other speakers. Until next time, look after yourselves, be kind to your communities, and don't forget to tell any medical professionals that you know how absolutely wonderful they are. Until next time, bye-bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy.